you know, our usual panel of four learned doctors, all of whose doctorates were equally arduous and respectable. That's right. Mine was not respectable. Well, okay, fair enough. Well, I think it's pretty yeah, respectable. Marshall is the only disreputable one here. The rest, the rest of us, the rest of us are, uh, uh, you know, gentlemen of uh, high society. There's a lot of, like, employment security with yours, Marshall. You can always move down to South America. <laughs> <laughs> or Indonesia, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's basically like a passport onto the developing world. We're here with our good friend, Dr. Mike Shane, an expert in, as Marshall would have you know, suburban studies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's got his PhD in American studies from the University of Minnesota. Um, I think in 2014, is that right, Mike? Yeah. And specifically, he is one of, I would say, the world's leading experts in the American sitcom, uh, both in terms of uh, in scholarship and in just knowing every particular detail of basically every TV show that's ever aired. So uh, that's probably putting a lot of pressure on Mike, but you know, I think I think he'll live up to the billing. <laughs> Mike, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, what you studied and uh, uh, what your interests are academically okay hi uh so as andrew said um, i'm mike shane like andrew i also went to the university of minnesota uh and did my graduate degree there uh in american studies uh i do not actually know everything about tv uh unless you count tv is stopping in like 1980 uh i my own research interests are were, were i guess i'm only like quasi an, an academic nowadays but i was very interested in uh, post-war, post-World War II popular culture, and specifically my thesis was on how post-war television, specifically the family sitcom, uh, helped instill messages of civic responsibility and activism among American citizens, uh, which I argue in my thesis kind of presages modern theories of neoliberalism and uh, civic responsibility. As an immigrant who has never seen any of these things, like I'm pretty useless, you know, in this world. But, um, you know, perhaps for some of our listeners who are as useless as I am because they have never watched Father Knows Best or Donna Reed. Um, maybe you could explain kind of like the lay out the timeline of the project that that, that you were working on and like try and, and sort of explain like, you know, what what was the how did this transition happen? Like, what does it uh and how do, how do you, did you interpret like the, the culture depicted in these sitcoms? So I would imagine probably a lot of people, uh, your age, my age, definitely younger than our ages have little to no firsthand experience. Well, definitely not firsthand, but any experience with these shows. Uh, the nice thing when I was doing the thesis and, and dissertation is when I was explaining it to thesis committees and older professors, they all were very excited about it because they're like, oh, yes, I remember that from my you know, childhood or something. So uh, or young adult stage. So it was that was a good in in that way. Uh, but you're right. A lot of people don't have experience of it. What the project was covering mostly shows from 1952 to 1972. And when I say, I call them suburban sitcom, which is just sort of a way of saying these are, these are programs that depict post-war family comedy, uh, a nuclear family in a suburban-esque setting. And when I say suburban, they're almost, they're not like, they're not showing the, a Levittown or some, you know, 
like uh, mass-produced housing development, it usually resembles a small town. They usually try to make it seem almost rural in a sense, but it's what we would call suburban. Uh, so like Leave it to Beaver is not set in, I think, what most historians would call a suburb, but we, we, we look at it as satisfying an idea of a suburb. The point of these suburban sitcoms, I'm arguing in the thesis, is that by their very nature, their attempts at sort of a quasi-realism depiction by presenting plots that are not really meant to be funny in a you know crazy comedy sort of way, but more of an, uh, oh yeah, that's something that happened. I can see that happening in my life or in my family's life or in my kid's life, that by presenting it in this way, it makes it more possible for them to create these messages of, of what it means to be a good parent, what it means to be a good citizen. And there's a lot of scholarship, a lot of critical ink about how uh, these sitcoms created images of the of the ideal family, about how this is what the nuclear family in 1950s looks like, you know, the mom, the dad, the kids, the, you know, mom staying at home, etc. Lots of scholarship about that. There's not a lot of scholarship about what I was talking about, about what it means to be not just a good family member, but also a good uh, citizen, to, to participate civically, to have a responsibility to do something in your community, to resolve social problems, to resolve uh, the problems of your community, and about how that is inextricably related to the idea of the family, that you're doing these things like I don't know, advocating for parks, improving community safety, uh, cleaning up your neighborhood of, of uh, pollution or what have you. You're doing it because it's, you're being a good citizen, but also because it's part of your job as a, as a family member. And that's what I'm saying that these programs, that's one of the messages being instilled by these programs in this post-war era, this idea of civic responsibility. Uh, let's, let's situate this a little bit in the history of, you know, when these uh, suburban sitcoms arose and like, you know, what sort of, you know, both in terms of like time period and also like, you know, just what, what are like the early suburban sitcoms and, and also like, you know, what was the, um, what was the entertainment milieu like at that time, you know, like when these, when these arose, what were they competing with both on TV or like in the radio or maybe in like popular novels or like, you know, what were the other kinds of like forms of mass entertainment that these were competing against and eventually, you know, found a, a very successful niche within. So this is like a, a lot of these sitcoms come in what I'd call like the mid to late 1950s. So you're like maybe a decade after the end of World War II. Uh, the, the very beginning of the end of World War II is when you're seeing television really explode on a mass scale. You're seeing radio kind of wind down. And for those of you who know anything about old TV, you're really seeing at the beginning of TV a lot of like, you know, variety programs, programs just sort of snatched from the radio. The suburban sitcom, the shows that I'm looking at come a little bit later. And so that their style of comedy, this is what we were talking about before we went uh, on here. Their style of comedy is different. The early TV shows, early TV comedy, the comedy that I call is more urban influence, stuff like, I don't know, like The Honeymooners, Amos and Andy, even I Love Lucy is very much just sort of crazy wild comedy. The sort of simple plots is just like, Lucy wants to be in a show or it's like some crazy scheme has developed or you know, they're trying, Amos and Andy are trying to earn money. It's very much sort of, I don't know, workplacey kind of vaudeville inspired comedy. These sitcoms 
in the as they move into the 50s take on a different form they're more they're very, much more family based they're much more quote you know realistic based the plots are more like you know so and so child wants to be on the the little league team or you know there's a mean teacher at school it's sort of that far less zany plots more attempting to be more i guess down to earth realistic plots but also plots that are meant to create more of a educational sense uh I don't know, educational is the right word, pedagogical sense about moral lessons. What's the right way of doing it? We don't watch I Love Lucy to see what's the right way to live our lives. You know, it's just crazy comedy. But I, I, the makers of shows like Father Knows Best or Donna Reed clearly are intending to look at these families and say, this is more of a model or this is some sort of behavioral way. And I think that's in that post-war context, that's really the big shift you're seeing in the 50s is that you're moving away from a more, uh, you know, just plain comedy, explicit vaudeville inspired type humor to a more, I guess, pedagogical, realistic style humor in in sitcoms. I have a question about that. Yeah. Uh, in like, I don't know, 1962 or 63, the chairman of the FCC said television was a vast wasteland. Absolutely. That's starkly at odds with the description you just gave us. Yeah. So what was he talking about and how was he wrong or sort of what's the conflict that's being represented there yeah, draw yeah so i uh, this is in the the first chapter it's 1961 yeah newton Minow gives the the vast wasteland speech but in the, it's in the context of what he's talking about so in his in the speech he i mean he's he's uh he's addressing tv broadcasters when he gives it so he's not just saying i hate tv it's all junk he's saying when tv is good i'm quoting him here nothing is better when tv is bad nothing is worse and he's just trashing all the shows that he thinks are not educating or uh, uplifting audiences. He's really advocating more for like, I don't know, like uh, shows that we would associate more of PBS nowadays or like the uh, educational shows. Cause he, he trashes comedy, he trashes sitcoms. He says their formula, they're unbelievable. Uh, and so- But you're saying that they are pedagogical, basically. I think they are, I think they are. Yeah. I, think, I think he was not necessarily seeing it or, he, or if he was seeing it, he was seeing it in a, uh, superficial way that he was saying that yeah they're pedagogical uh they teach these silly lessons that nobody takes seriously and i am saying on some hand maybe yes but on the other hand i think these are lessons that whether consciously or not a lot of people both the viewers and the creators of the shows were taking seriously yeah and uh i think it's maybe worth just looking at like the sort of the 50s you know uh and, and the post-war period specifically, you know, what was happening in sort of the political economy of the United States as the U.S. moved out of World War II and past the Great Depression into the 50s? I know we all have sort of an idea about the 50s as, uh, what's, what's that TV show I'm trying to think of that was like the 80s version of the 50s? Wonder Years? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's like the Wonder Years. It's like, you know, hot dogs and apple pie and the diner and, uh, but also like kind of like the organization man the rise of the right. corporation you know a real conformity and maybe also like a, a, a really strong um sort of sinking in of anti anti-communism post-war anti-communism for the first time as well and how do all these things kind of you know let's just set a bit of a backdrop here and just sort of see what you know where what the context in which these sitcoms is arising looks like I think, as you said, that's that's a lot of things going on in the 50s, right? Like we associate the, I don't know, I wonder if you meant maybe like happy days is what you're referring to there, but like just the, 
the, yeah, yeah, just yeah. all that sort of like nostalgia about right, yeah. like, oh, this these were the good years when we did when we had the apple pie in the diner and right. you know, whatever Fourth of July, mom's hot dog, you know, whatever, whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the, and even just looking, they people tend to use these sitcoms as like a as a uh, shorthand for that too, right? Oh, like the good old days, Ozzy and Harriet, and leave it to Beaver. And what's fascinating is you watch a lot of these shows is that there's actually a lot of real melodramatic stuff going on. Uh, it's like these. The plots on here, I mean, no one's, no one's saying that these are like serious, complex, moral dilemma programs, but they treat these plots very seriously. It's like you watch Father Knows Best. It's like, it's like, whoa, it's like these guys, there's some real angst and anxiety at times. They're worried. At times, the dad seems like he's worried that his family is just, you know, going to going to hell or blowing apart <laughs> or that there's tension to tension with the marriage again not in a sense of our modern viewer like you know where we expect some five episode arc about a divorce or something none of that but it's just in the context of your 30 minutes it's like these melodramatic things i think kind of highlight what andrew is talking about that there's a lot of underlying tensions in the 1950s fear of communism but also fear of like uh like masculinity fears like the like the lavender scare and and uh uh, fear of like what po how post-war men are living or if the United States was becoming weak or soft that's an underlying concern you see pop up on a lot of these shows uh fear about how the family was juvenile delinquency was a huge concern in the 1950s so I mean there's a lot of social political moral panic anxiety in the 50s that implicitly anyway I think pops up a lot in these programs even though we tend to think of them as very uh, escapist and optimistic. One thing that I was really interested in reading your dissertation was the way, like how seriously the critics take these like moral yeah. plot arcs, you know, when writing in magazines that now are just don't really inspire a lot of uh, thoughts about how good the criticism is in them like TV guide or whatever. But like, there were all sorts of people who were, who had very, very serious thoughts and like really, I don't even know how to put it. It's like, it's it's so, it, it implies that the culture was like rigid in a way that doesn't really make sense now. Because they'd be like, this plot that involved, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a wife advocating for a public park or something was like degenerate and like against our society or something. I don't think that's exactly what, uh, like a good example, but you know, like the, the language that they use indicates that like, there really was this idea of like the American way of life that was very serious to like sort of the um, chattering classes and like the opinion makers and stuff like that. So my question is, uh, it, what, what was that society like? And then how, you know, how exactly uh, was were the boundaries of that being policed either through television or through like the criticism of television or like writing about it? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. Uh you're saying like about like how the how tv can form like sort of boundaries on what the proper either behavior or discourse is yeah well i'm actually kind of i so i keep asking these questions that are like have too many parts but like my first question basically is like what was the actual society like you know or or what was this what was the ideal society being envisioned by either the, you know both the tv writers and also the critics who were trying to hold them within those boundaries I think at least in the shows I'm looking at, I would say that the ideal, I think I have a chapter about this, but like the ideal citizen is somebody who is 
both active and inactive in their community. So that there's the sense of like, to be a good citizen, you have to be very active and you know, ready to handle uh, your community's problems, you know, uh, stand up on the school board, do these things, but, uh, but you can't be too active. And I think there's the fear that if one goes too political, one goes too, almost too civically active, then you stop being a good family member. And then there's that fear I think an underlying fear that is if you step away from it, uh, your family too much, your household, your household blows up, your household is poor. There's a, a really good Donna Reed episode in which, you know, throughout the whole series, it's like she's, she's definitely active in the community, but then in this one, she's like contemplating running for, for a political office. And then there's the fear that if she gets the job, it'll disrupt the entire household and, and that. And so that's almost like the bridge too far, right? That you've, uh, uh, the, the lines have been drawn. And so and I think is that, that what the TV creators, the TV writers, and the lessons are being instilled is that there are, you have to be a good citizen, but you have to do it within the limitations of the family of domesticity. And that's, that's part of what I, what I refer to as sitcom citizenship. It's civic participation, but it's a very um, circumscribed type of uh, citizenship. And I think that's, that's, that's the kind of society, I don't know if you say that's the society at large that every popular culture form is saying this message, but I think you're definitely getting it through these TV shows. There's a ton of interesting stuff here. I, I have a lot of follow-up questions to what you've just been saying, but I think before I ask those, it would be a good idea for you to briefly describe the premise of both Father Knows Best and Donna Reed and whatever other shows you think uh, we should know about. Because, you know, as Jerry suggested at the beginning, none of us have actually seen them. Sure, yeah. I mean, like, so there's not a whole lot to describe. I mean, like, Father Knows Best is basically, and Donna Reed, they're both family sitcoms. It's uh, Father Knows Best is about the Anderson family, and it's just the mom, dad, and three children. Donna Reed show is the Stone family, and it's, uh, again, a mom and dad, and I think it's two children this time. Uh, but they're basically just sort of nuclear family type programs. And this is a genre, one of the reasons why I think it's perhaps people don't have a familiarity with it is I think it's sort of almost a, it's a dead genre in a sense, right? I mean, there definitely are family comedy shows now, but not very many. And I think that the, a lot of these programs, I mean, Leave it to Beaver maybe is the one that we still think of today, but like Ozzy and Harriet, they're all just programs in which it's, it's just sort of the daily day adventures of uh, a mom or dad and their children, uh, you know, and the sort of adventures they get into. What's interesting about all of these shows is that the, the workplace is almost non-existent. I mean, infamously on Ozzy and Harriet, it was never established what Ozzy did for a living on any of the seasons. He just said, I'm going to go to the office. I think you may even see him at an office, but you have no idea what he does. So uh, father knows best. I think like, the guy is like a, he's like a business, he sells real estate or something. But again, it's just so vague and, and there's almost no episode involving the workplace. And so what that means is that everything is about like the home or their sort of home adjacent community, the school, the park, the, the you know, community centers or so on. And so the workplace is just a completely foreign concept to any of these programs. It's very much family driven. And uh, uh, the other day I'll just say is that they're very formulaic in the sense that they're, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a laugh track, they're film shows. They look very different than I think uh, 
shows like even sh other shows in that period, like I Love Lucy, which uses a, a studio audience. These are laugh track programs. These are film programs. Well, okay. So I want to ask a couple of questions about the uh, uh, content that you just uh, brought up. So this idea, that, so I gather Donna Reed is the mother of this nuclear yeah. family and the Donna Reed show. Yeah. Um, you're saying that, you know, she's considering to uh, uh, get involved in like local politics, but that is transgressing her role in the family. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, you know, my, my reading in uh, has covered things like the post-war Red Scare and the uh, uh, purging of left-wing, mostly female economists from the federal bureaucracy in the late 1940s that seems to have a lot of the same themes going on in it, which is like the kind of, you know, women who are educated and uh, um, subjects in their own lives, that is, they decide what they're doing, have gotten, have gone too far, they're the sort of bleeding edge of the New Deal, and they need to be gotten rid of um, in order for, uh, you know, the society to be stable, and, you know, the way that they're purged is very strongly in, like, they're taking away men's role as leaders, men's roles as leaders in government, they're, you know, they should, I mean, they, uh, you know, female economists like this were overly questioned in Congress and by loyalty boards and the, on the grounds of like, you know, did your husband give you permission to say this? Aren't you not really a mother or wife? You know, you're nominally married, but like, what kind of marriage is it that you're um, having your own career in a in a sort of sub, in, in a role of being a, a policy making subject? And it sounds like that you know, it was kind of established already as a background when you're talking about these shows in the mid 50s, which yeah. is, you know, five or more years after that kind of post-war Red Scare had already crested. No, absolutely. And uh, I and I would say that like the lessons being taught, it's not done in a necessarily really like, uh, I'll say the word is like a harsh manner, like that episode where Donna Reed uh, considers running for town council and stops the show the episode is very careful to show that it's not but she doesn't abandon the campaign because she's unqualified or because she's a bad she'd be bad at it or something it's because uh her household uh suffers from it and that it's and i guess you could take this as a maybe another kind of implicit fear reference but it's like as she gets more involved in politics the dad has to take over the household responsibilities and is so bad at it. And it's almost like his bungling and fear is what prompts him to her him to tell her, no, you, you've really got to take care of the household. And like, uh, see what I say here. Uh, he insists that she end her campaign saying, we need you more than the country does. Uh, and she agrees because uh, she thought she only thought her family wanted to do so. And then he says, no, not all you have to do is concentrate on being a wife. So again, it's very, it's definitely, I guess, sort of a, this circumscribed, the thing that you were alluding to, a circumscribed chauvinistic sense, but it's also presented more in the sense of like, this is what a woman's true responsibility and role is. It's not a punishment. It's just like it's presented as the, the most ideal way of doing things. These debates had real teeth at the time in a way that doesn't make sense to us now. The idea of being able to... Uh, connect like a breakdown in the home to like the breakdown in the fabric of society and then also the fact that that would mean that we would all have to become communists under the red menace is like and and like taking that dead seriously yeah. 
And like every single sort of middle brow opinion maker who's talking about this sort of thing in the entire society believes that. Because like now you have moral criticism of TV shows, you know, along the lines of like, well, this isn't representing people correctly or, you know, maybe, you know, or, you know, the opposite of that. But like there's, there are two camps on that, you know, you can be woke, you can be anti-woke. In those times, like there was nobody in respectable society who could be like, you know, culturally radical in a way that was threatening to like the family unit, which was our sort of like moral bedrock on which the entire society was founded and we would lose to the communists if it, if it crumbled. And like, that's just a, I, I don't know if you have anything more to say about that, but like, that was what struck me about sort of the tone of the criticism of these things so that just doesn't really, uh, there's like no language in which to convey that now that would really give you the feeling of it. Like maybe you can intellectually grasp it, but like you can't feel what that was like, you know? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that it's this, um, what was a gold mine when I was doing the thesis is, as you said, there's a lot of stuff in publications of the time, TV Guide, which at, in the 1950s, 1960s, TV Guide tried to be quasi-intellectual more than it, it does it does now. <laughs> but it's it's the sense of like critics who are, I think nowadays, like the genre that we'd be talking about here, these family sitcoms, you get a critic who just dash off some little pithy thing like, oh, it's just like some stupid like comedy, like, you know, the end or whatever. But as you said, in these, in these critics reviews are like, well, really seriously analyzing the messages. And even if they don't like the show, they're not just saying, oh, the show is just dumb, stupid end of story. But it's like, I don't like what the, I don't like how the show is depicting something, or I don't like the particular ideology behind it. So I think you're right. I think there's definitely uh, people were taking it very seriously. I mean, I mean, to piggyback on what Andrew was saying, uh, you know, it's impossible, right, to, to sort of view this except in the light of the Cold War, right? Because, uh, and, and, and you write about this, right, in, in, your, in your work. And I'm just curious if you could, like, you know, sort of, because the thing is, like, I actually don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I was born in the Soviet Union, but uh, I never, you know, I never watched. I don't think we, we didn't have sitcoms, like, not really. Um and, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was, you know, sort of like patriotic programming. There were war movies, lots of war movies, obviously. Um, lots of like detective stories, apparently. It was quite what, popular. Was there, a com- was there a comedy? There was comedy. I mean, there were, there were, com- there were like comedic movies, but they were, yeah, I don't, I don't know what they had in terms of like, in terms of analogs to like American sitcoms. But what what I'm curious about is sort of like, you know, the positioning that this cultural product tried to stake out in in like within the context of the cold war like like as you say right it's like it's a mechanism of social formation for the purpose of like not you know us not all becoming communists or i guess you know them not all becoming communists um and so like what was it what was it doing like how was it establishing those boundaries like what was it um how was it how was it imparting that lesson I think that's a great question. I think that uh, explicitly on these programs, there's like almost zero reference to the Cold War, as you might expect, right? Like nobody is talking about communism. Nobody's talking about Soviet Union or whatever. Uh, And I think though that in the context of TV in general though, and I think I I touched on this at some points, you get a lot of critics, TV producers, people in the industry who are concerned about how what's a good Cold War uh, television thing that uh, programs like uh, there's programs like the Ford Foundation makes that 
try to present educational things. They present TV versions of opera or music lectures. And the, the explicit goal here is to try to educate people and to try to make America seem you know, very respected internationally. So that's on the other end of the spectrum of how TV is part of a, the sort of Cold War context. Where these sitcoms fall in is that they're not, I would say is to me, they're taking a more, a less explicit, less obviously, this is about the Cold War approach to lessons that we were looking at earlier. So they go back to something that Andrew was talking about earlier, right after World War II, and even a little bit during World War II, you're getting a host of like these uh, movies, radio specials, little TV, uh, documentaries or whatever that have very explicit moral educational things, particularly about race, but also about other, other things like being a good citizen. And they frame it in a sense that you have to do these things because uh, if you don't, our enemies win. And so during World War II, it's about Nazism, is that the Nazis want you to hate your, your, your people who are of a different color or a different religion. Uh, but then after in the, the Cold War, then it's the Soviets want to. So you get these news programs, these, these uh, little educational features that are shown in movie theaters, explicitly telling you uh, to do these things for Cold War reasons. What I'm seeing these sitcoms do is that they're kind of doing the same thing, but they're not being so explicit about it. They're not, at no point in the sitcom do we hear somebody say it's, it's important to do these things because if you don't, you know, the Soviets win or your enemies want you to feel this way. But it's the same lessons that were being taught, you know, five, six, seven years earlier through these very explicit things. Do you think that there's any connection between, I mean, is this, is it, are these sitcoms like a lagging indicator of this? Or is there any kind of like more interesting connection between sort of the turn away from the Soviet Union as like a World War II ally toward the Cold War um, that can be traced through these sitcoms, or is it just sort of like that happened and then, uh, you know, uh, these sitcoms come along a few years later and they sort of are crystallizing and, and maybe reifying, like, you know, the so-called American way of life that is in, you know, contraposition to our, you know, evil, faceless, godless Soviet enemy or whatever. I think more of the latter. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely more of a lagging thing because as... I forget exactly when, like Donna Reed doesn't actually premiere until I think like 19, 1958, Father Knows Best, 1954. So we're talking like mid fifties here. Cold War is already kind of in full swing by this point. Uh, you've already had, I think, I forget the exact dates on McCarthyism, but those, that's practically done or cresting around that time. So the literal notions of the Cold War is much earlier. And so the, these sitcoms, perhaps because of that, they don't feel the need maybe to be as as explicit or as uh, you know explicitly concerned of rehashing everything. It's just it's assumptions that everybody knows who are watching by this point about, as you said, the American way of life and the importance of an American ideology. It, you don't need to explicitly say them. I want to go back to both. I mean, I guess to mention again the absence of the workplace as a setting in these, the centrality of the home and the community and family life as extending into the community, but not the workplace. And uh, you know, that's like the proper um, venue for politics is basically how do you act in that setting. Um, and also the idea, you know, it's not as though this is, you know, I guess as a total. Uh, noob on the question of like the politics of 1950s sitcoms, 
you know, the view is like, oh, well, this is presenting, you know, the idealized society without anxieties, you know, in some sense, everything is off stage. The way you're describing it doesn't sound like everything is off stage. There's anxiety about masculinity. Yeah. It's not as though this is an un, un political context or something like that, you know, who, putting people in their proper roles and, and, and upholding those is, you know, part of the, the text, not the subtext in, in some way, it sounds like. Um, you know, but so, I mean, I guess this kind of brings us partly towards the, your your suggestion and, and thesis, I guess, more than a suggestion that, you know, this is presaging uh, neoliberal, uh, neoliberal ideology. Like, I'm curious how the um, centrality of the of family life as politics plays out in the 50s, you know, when we associate that with uh, uh, cultural changes in the 60s and so on and, and later. Right, there's a lot to break down there. Uh, <laughs> let me take the. I guess your your one of your first points was about like the how the the politics that we tend, as you said, that we tend to think of these programs as not depicting these anxieties that it's sort of anxiety free, political free in a sense. And what's interesting is that I, I doubt the average viewer is sitting down even in the 1950s watching these shows and thinking, oh my gosh, these are perfectly hitting you know, my anxieties. This is an accurate depiction of my inner fears. I don't think people are, are internalizing it that way. But what I think is that they are either consciously, subconsciously, or what's being trying to be instilled in them is that these are very relatable anxieties and fears. And the reason why they don't come off as unsettling, you know, uh, angst-ridden entertainment is because everything resolves happily in 30 minutes. That's as the nature of the sitcom beast in, in 1950s and even now to some extent. And so that the one of the ways that politics is in long-term politics is incompatible with the sitcom format is, as we all know, politics is a is a messy long-term uh, process that does not work in a sitcom format. And so almost by just very nature, characters can be, can and are expected to be active citizens and to be involved in these civic participation projects, but nothing lasts more than a 30 minute episode. And so once that's over, the problem is solved. You've done, you've done your bit and we move on. So uh, that's one way I think of addressing what you were, your first point about how uh, these programs are depicting the nature of politics in the 1950s, even in a time in which we, we don't think of these programs, that era is very political. And why is that neoliberal on your reading? So I'm saying it as like, it's neoliberal because, let me, uh, let me offer an example. So one of the things I do at the, at the end of the thesis is I try to connect this to uh, even further down the line when neoliberalism really emerges as a framework, which is more like 70s and 80s. One of the things I, I, I take up is both neoliberalism uh, and uh, communitarianism. So like, I, I spent a lot of time at the end of the book talking about Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, which is both, I don't know if you'd explicitly call it neoliberal, but it's pretty close. Uh, and what I found is that when Putnam is talking, he's sort of waxing about the importance of the citizen and the ideal community. And he throws out these ideas like about how, uh, this is from Putnam's book. He's like, oh, if the parents of this child 
uh, their school's a shambles. I mean, and he says that, you know, they, they could take their kids to a public school, to a private school, or they could, you know, complain a lot. But what if they started a PTA and they worked in their community to improve their school and, you know, paint, paint it and, you know, and host extracurricular activities. And he's saying about how such, this is such a great thing. Basically, he's describing the plots of sitcom episodes. Not, yeah, I mean, that, that to me, yeah. that says more about Robert Putnam than it says about you know, this ostensible subject of his analysis. Absolutely. But it's like, and it's, it'd be one thing if Putnam were like just some, you know, crank blogger, but this is something that, as you know, got a ton. Well, of, he is a crank uh, blogger. Oh, yes. But a, <laughs> he's a crank blogger who's widely read in book form and got a ton of attention when that book came out. And so that's, to me, it's something that these ideas, which we associate as neoliberal ideas, it's basically, he's, they're advocating for, sitcom citizenship. They're advocating for people to be very personally involved in fixing the problems of their community and their family through their community, mm -hmm. but not not be too political. Like Putnam yeah, saying, okay. I, so, I don't so want you to be like, you know, uh, some sort of political malcontent who's like, <laughs> you know, advocating for greater school funding and going, you know, doing that. No. So I, as I, let me just see yeah. if I understand what you're talking about. You know, it's not as though these societies, towns, families, or whatever have no problems. It's that those problems can be solved through the application of individual exactly. action, individual uh, uh, involvement, no need for mass politics. Exactly. You know, it's it, the, the neoliberalism comes in the individuality of the uh, positive solutions to the positive problems. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. That makes um, I I feel like I understand your thesis now. <laughs> I, I would like to to explore and just push on a little bit this idea of the you know 22, 24 minute episode and the um the connection in that, which it seems like there's it seems like there might be a flow both in and out of this. It, it, what I mean is that like so the 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 episodic uh, TV uh, sitcom that doesn't have like a building arc of its storyline um so it's not like you know it's not like um i don't actually when did like uh episodic like plot driven cumulative plot driven like something like mad men or something when did that kind of show start existing because that seems like a relatively novel development right that's like 1970 s especially 1980s definitely by then but yeah it's it's very rare in the 50s or 60s to have that sort of thing so, you know, the, this was like an original sort of imposition of, of like a format on, the, on television at the time was basically like the episodes are relatively not connected from each other. You know, there's no plot continuity. It's like, it's like how in an episode of The Simpsons, Homer might like fall down a cliff and break his arm and something. And then the next episode, he's just fine, you know? Yeah. And like, maybe there would be like a pregnancy or a new child added, or maybe like a cast member would change or something like that, uh, which may or may not, may not be explained like in the plot of the show. But generally speaking, like the storyline from one episode to the other doesn't really have any cumulative effect. So if somebody gets, you know, if, if a new person moves in next door, you might never see that person right. again. Yeah, absolutely. Or um, if they, you know, somebody gets a new job who's like a secondary character, you might not ever hear about that job again, um, that kind of thing. And so it seems to me that like, you know, this limitation on the format, first of all, I'm curious if you think that this is like a limitation that people just saw as like inherent to like the TV show, like how oh, people aren't going to watch every episode, so we can't do it, like we can't build it. And obviously, you know, there was no DVR at the time or anything like that. So it was very difficult to go back and watch an episode that you missed. Um, 
or if you also think that like because it does have such a nice political you know resonance with this sort of preferred politics of these episodes where it's like uh you know like the 22 minute episode if if everything has to tidally wrap up in 22 minutes or whatever it's like well you're never going to get the person like running for senate and passing the big bill in 22 minutes or whatever you know you're going to have the person maybe being able to like advocate to the mayor to you know put in the traffic light or build a new park or something they probably won't even show the ribbon cutting ceremony though they'll just show the mayor saying oh yeah park great idea you know that kind of thing so i'm wondering if you think that 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 works two ways or if it's just sort of like that people just saw like the producers and the tv people thought okay well this is just how a tv show works it has to wrap up in 22 minutes um and maybe also uh, i'm curious actually before I, I get into that a specific question did radio shows have cumulative plots before tv well, that's a good question uh, like radio shows uh if they were a show that specifically was all about like a serialized plot so like you know, early soap operas, for example, on radio definitely had that. But like radio, radio sitcoms, not really. What's interesting, though, is that like radio comedy was a lot more, a lot more, I guess, connecting. I don't know if continuity is the right word, but like you listen to like radio comedy shows, there's like running jokes that like begin on like one week and you listen to it for like, you know, months. It'll keep referencing this one running joke and you you know you'd have no idea what it was if you hadn't listened to one episode <laughs> that's feel- that's our promise on this podcast too we're gonna come up with we're an elaborate always gonna be harkening back uh to early <laughs> jokes that yeah that's right you gotta listen to every one of them so you can get the jokes so it's like i feel like old radio comedy whether i don't know if this is more of like a vaudeville type thing but they had maybe less limitation about basically doing that about saying jack benny's like here i'm going to reference a joke i made like six months ago and if you don't get it too bad for you but like that's this is the joke we're going to do here whereas tv didn't like doing that and i think that's maybe maybe that's just the nature of the beast that maybe that as you said tv writers tv producers were a little afraid about are people going to be watching every week or or uh you know when they show these you know, re- like reruns on the radio were not really a thing. Reruns on TV very much so. And so I don't know if there's the feeling yeah, if this becomes a rerun, will people understand? And so there's definitely a, a far less willing to reference the past on TV. Your, your second point, though, about how this fits into the, the nature of the lessons being taught, absolutely, that there's something about how, you know, a 22-minute plot line being resolved is sort of reassuring and then that there's no need to worry about pesky ramifications or continuity and that you see this in, in the episodes in which there's there's two resolutions there's the aggressive status quo return in which is like something is happening the dad is a new job everything's going crazy and then it's like nope end of the episode he's back to normal everything's fine or as you said they're just completely ignore ignoring what happened it's like there's a new neighbor it's a uh, you know he's uh, uh, a mexican american there's some racism there's some anxiety this is kind of tense but the family steps in and it's like you know shows tolerance and then we never see that guy again so there's the sense of like the plot line has been resolved but then continuity isn't a big thing so we don't need to worry about any of the ramifications of anything that happens here do you think that like the producers did that because i mean you 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 do trace that like they saw what they were doing an important component of that being teaching these lessons do you think that this imposition of this lim- this limitation of in that's imposed on the format has anything to do with the fact that like this is a particular good, good way to teach these little capsule potted lessons or is it just sort of like a coincidence that maybe like was a happy coincidence 
I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a happy coincidence, but I think it's it's a format that works really well. But I think it's um, you know, even today, I mean, you do see some, but even today, you don't see a whole lot of what I'd call like hour long family, even our like hour long family sitcoms. So I mean, I think yeah. it's, just, it's the nature of of the TV genre. But it's a happy coincidence, I think, or close to a happy coincidence. My my last question is a little out of left field here, but like, do you think? I was struck by this Putnam example of, you know, he's he's citing these essentially like TV plots as like, this is what politics should be, is doing these TV plots. Do you think we've been like colonized by this weird random thing that happened with the TV format where because of the limitation of the format, they had to make these little civic arcs that uh, that last 22 minutes and then resolve tidally and you never have to think about them again. I mean, that is... It's, it does strike me that that has a lot of, you know, consanguinity with this sort of idea of neoliberalism that we have. Do you think that we're all just sort of like weirdly living in like a 1950s TV episode conception of what civic life is? Which, I mean, not to elaborate on my own question too much here, but like, it's, it strikes me actually that there's like, you can actually, like Putnam does, wax fairly nostalgic on that now because we don't really live in a society in the same way that people in the 50s did. So you can look back at that and say, man, it would be nice if I knew all my neighbors and we could get together and have a potluck to raise money for the PTA or make sure that the mayor knows that we need a stoplight put in at the dangerous intersection or, you know, all these various things. Like, I mean, I that sounds nice, you know, sounds nice to have a community where people know each other and stuff like that, but we don't have that, you know, really anymore. Um but do you think that like that, you know, we, we ha- there's like this sort of like brain bug that we all have been infected with that like, e- you know, puts limitations on our politics that are sort of like uh, little mirror versions of these 22 minute episode limitations, you know? I think so. I mean, like, I, I'm not going to say that it's all because of these programs. It is something though, that I think it's just, like, brain bug might be a good way of putting it. I mean, you, you like, scan the news or internet every day and you'll see stories that kind of fit in this vein right like about how oh uh health insurance wouldn't cover so-and-so's thing but like they these this kids class came together and raised money to build a ramp or a wheelchair or something and it's a nice charming sitcom-esque plotline episode that doesn't address any of the real ramifications or consequences and for a lot of people who see this story, I think they treat it almost like a sitcom episode. Great story, nice lesson. I should do that sometime. And that's what they take away from it. Uh, Rather than thinking about, I guess, the bigger picture of the broader story. So in some sense where you're right, that we've been instilled both, I think, I think from TV, but also from all, you know, a host of other things to have this mindset of what it means to be a good citizen and to participate. And as you said, it's not, it's not inherently, I guess, a bad, you know, degenerate thing. These are good things to have in mind, right? To want to help your community and your neighborhood and your fellow people. But it's, it's how I guess we think about it or how it's framed. So this is kind of like a, a, a so two unrelated, um, questions but like the first one is basically like one thing that i've noticed you know reading your reading your work um is that there's this process that happens right where kind of that vaudevillian sensibility that um predates world war ii sort of is either pushed out or suppressed or just you know turns into like it's not it doesn't go away entirely right because so many of those uh of those people are still around uh, but it definitely becomes less of a national mood, 
right? So um, there's this transition to a different style of comedy. Uh, but then what was interesting to me is that, you know, I think if you look at a lot of the people who, let's say, came up in like the 70s, like late 60s and 70s, and I'm thinking here particularly of somebody like Woody Allen, for example, like they resurrect that, a lot of that, like Mel Brooks. Um, and, and it's not an accident that, you know, a lot of these are Jews. Um, but uh, that, you know, like many of the early vaudevillians, right? Uh, and so and so that that sensibility sort of like undergoes like a resurrection. And I wonder if you think um, in terms of, let's say, culture, lasting cultural impact, whether that has had more, whether that has been like more long lived, more robust overall uh, relative to kind of this the the, the post-war interregnum is how I think of it, um, or not, or am I wrong about this? And I just wanted to hear your thoughts about that. I think it depends, like, on what criteria you evaluate it by. I mean, in terms of, like, you know, what are people talking about? What's the comedy? What's the, the long-term impact of entertainment? It's obviously the, the things you were talking about. Like, people are like the, the, the early vaudeville inspired humor, but also the revivals you talked about. Like people, obviously way more people watch, uh, are familiar with the comedy of Mel Brooks or Woody Allen than any of these programs. In the sense though of the, almost the institutional aspects though, it's, it's harder to say that in some ways that revival you, you discussed in the seventies and late sixties is playing off of this institutional convention of domestic family you know comedy and humor that they're kind of skewering it or parroting it or offering an, a, an alternative to it and so i think that that these programs even if people don't watch or talk about them and i'm uh certainly many people don't uh today and or if they ever did i mean i don't in in reading the scholarship about this it's amazing how many people don't actually have very accurate details or senses of what these programs are but even if they don't there's just that sense of like the the aura the idea behind it that no matter what even if you have no idea of who Ozzy and Harriet are that conjures something that's the institutional thing that I think is even if nobody listens cares or has any interest in it in some ways is maybe a little larger impact societally than the type of comedy you're saying, even though that is maybe far more funnier and more consumed. Sure. And, and yeah, like, and so, you know, and at the end of your, uh, of, of your thesis, like there, a major figure appears and that's the figure of uh, Norman Lear. Right. And so, you know, I, I guess, I guess to sort of like take us into that era, can you, can you explain like sort of who he was and what he was trying to do and where that connection to sort of like neoliberalism comes in? So Norman Lear uh, is kind of is frequently credited as being one of the people who revolutionized the sitcom. He's the creator of All in the Family and other kind of quote relevant sitcoms of the '70s, which really emphasized, as opposed to earlier sitcoms that were explicitly political, politi politically free shows like All in the Family or uh, Maud or what have you explicitly talked about all kinds of political and cultural issues, racism, abortion, homosexuality, et cetera, talked about all the time. Uh, what I am arguing in the thesis though, is that while, while Norman Lear certainly presents a different sitcom and some, he's still operating under a lot of the same 
restrictions and ideologies of the old sitcoms, maybe even in a more restrictive sense even. Uh, because what I'm saying is that if you watch a show like All in the Family, they talk about politics all the time. They don't really do anything about it. They just talk about it. And uh, it almost even more so than the original programs, the lesson you really take away when you watch All in the Family is that to be a good political citizen is to just do something in your own family or in your own household that is important. You know, it's, it's important to really consider these issues. It's important to respect others' opinions on this or to grow as a person that Archie learns to be slightly less racist himself and that's politically okay. Uh, is that compared to say the old Father Knows Best Down to Reed shows, yeah, they're not talking about racism in this explicit way. They're not talking about politics in this way. But the characters are more active in their community. There is no community at all in the family. Archie barely leaves his house, and so uh, even at the time, even a lot of critics noted this. It's all that the the politics of that show were almost entirely concentrated in the household and living room, uh, as opposed to these earlier shows in which characters were being asked to go and be civic participants in society. And so, what I think Norman Lear does is that he offers. Uh, a very different political view of the sitcom, but he's still operating under the basic ideas of what does it mean to be a good citizen? It means to be a good family member. It means to do something. You still have to stay within your family member lane, I guess, so to speak. In All in the Family, you've got this like uh, older white guy and his children and their boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever, are, like more hippies. Is that right? Yeah, it's like he's got a daughter and she's married or married to a hippie. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, that... You know, uh, you're saying that like politics takes place within the home. It's uh, as a consumer in some sense, and you're sort of commentating upon these broader historical forces or political forces that are represented by characters in somebody's living room. You know, how how would you say like I don't know in your earlier characterization of the Donna Reed episode where the mother wants to go into politics but ends up kind of being confined to her uh, role as mother, and like that would be a, a, a betrayal of the family for her to to do that um you know like what's the i mean other than the, the how overt the political issues are you know i gather in the donna reed show you're not getting sort of like national political conflict there as you would in all in the family but you are getting this kind of like politics happens here and correct outcome of politics is everyone inhabiting their the roles that's assigned to them yeah i mean it's one way of thinking about it is to even compare how these things are being depicted. Like a Norman Lear sitcom of the 70s, Maud, there's a whole plot line about Maud considering running for politics, just like that Donna Reed episode. In this case, it's like a, it's a five-part arc, but it's like, and it takes it a lot more seriously than the Donna Reed episode. It's like, uh, in this case, her husband is portrayed as being uh, wrong in a sense, and that he's almost like a temper having like a temper tantrum trying to tell her to stop but when you get to the we get to the end the, the same it's the same resolution she uh she ends up uh not getting the job not getting going into politics and and she says i'm a full-time wife and that's it and so the the lessons are are being the i don't know if lessons that the the sitcom is depicting maude is portraying it in a much more explicitly political very realistic way that uh, that's the Norman Lear trademark but the overall lesson the overall conclusion is still basically the same it's still the 
what does it mean to be a good citizen? It's, it's somewhat irreconcilably conflicted with the idea of being a good family member, being a good wife, being a good mother. So uh, I don't want to say nothing has changed because that's not true. That these are very different shows, but the, the overall constraints, I think, of the sitcom and what it means and what, what it's teaching about citizenship are still the same. So, I mean, I want to, you know, go way in the future. Parks and Recreation represents a similar setup, except that the female lead is not a mother or a, right. a wife. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, portrayed as, uh, you know, being at, aside from her career uh, ambitions. And yet the whole show still treats her as like, she's slightly ridiculous. Her aims to achieve political office are, uh, you know, a sort of betrayal of what of who she really is. I mean, even though like on the one sense, she's got, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Madeleine Albright pictures on her wall in the office. Um, you know, it's definitely, you know, kind of treating her as a source of mockery, I guess, uh, uh, you know, in the absence of the family. So is that, you know, is it right to put that in the same kind of lineage of, uh, uh, you know, like active role in politics being questioned and or mocked in a comedic setting? It's definitely in that context. It's very, it's different though, obviously, for the reason that you mentioned that, that Leslie is not a wife or mother in the same context as uh, these other programs. And that this, this sense of humor in Parks and Rec is more, a little more absurdist, I would say, than some of these, uh, these other programs. But yeah, I think there's definitely, I, which I think is telling that even in a program as absurdist as dealing with a character who is completely separated from the domestic uh, framework is still being presented, as you said, somewhat an object of ridicule for getting too invested in politics, so. With the, with the Lear shows, I mean, the thing that I think is like very recognizable between, uh, well, as Marshall was just kind of developing, one thing that's very recognizable is a similarity between the Lear shows and maybe the shows immediately preceding the Trump presidency are that it's not necessarily even that like the characters themselves are ridiculous for wanting to do politics, it's that the politics themselves are almost like inherently ridiculous that like, in some sense, it's almost like the, from the early shows, which sort of say, you know, it's it's ridiculous to think about the big issues, but like you can do some little things in your house to like Archie Bunker, who just sort of sits on his his chair and, and you know, proclaims on various issues to then, you know, Leslie Nope, who is, you know, actually in sort of the arena of politics, but everything that's happening has sort of this air of just ridiculousness to it. It's all kind of like, well, you know, wouldn't it be best if these just, things just kind of were left to their own devices and they will just kind of work themselves out. But the thing that I also find recognizable about the Lear shows specifically is that like, it seems like their conception of what the most sort of reasonable political thing for an individual like civilian to be doing is essentially to like make sure that other people that they know also have good opinions, yeah. Yeah. which is like, I mean, that what, what could be more like recognizable today than like, you, you know, uh, your your supreme duty in politics is to make sure that like everyone who posts on Twitter says something that's good and not bad, or that you're, you know, that you confront your racist uncle at Thanksgiving, or you know, like all these, you know, we're all we're all told that like you know it's it's the most important thing that you can do politically, secondary to voting, I guess, but in your personal lives is like to just be like the most annoying school marm to every single person in your orbit, and make sure that if they step out of line for one second, you're right there to say, well, actually, uh, the correct opinion to have about the you know whatever, whatever issue it is, is, is this. And as uh, and if this the, is, 
in this house we state our opinions and a sign on the lawn (laughs) (laughs) exactly uh yeah exactly so i i wonder if you know if you have any uh, observations on like sort of the, the development of like the, the character of politics or the character of sort of like personal politics as they sort of arise from, you know, the 50s more communitarian approach to today, almost like a, you know, completely disaggregated approach. Yeah, I did one of the things is I wrote this thesis and well, I finished it in 2014, which, you know, before the age of Trump, right? And so the conclusion in some sense is almost like ridiculously out of date already. Uh, but one of the things, I think you're right, like the leader sitcoms really do prefigure uh, some of the comedy in this Asia Trump type approach. Uh, there was an episode, like if I were to revise this, there was an episode of uh, that Roseanne reboot during the Trump era about, I think the plot was like, and they have an, it's either an Afghan or an Iraqi neighbor. And Roseanne is like terribly racist to this person making like horribly racist jokes. But then and it's like the audience, in some sense, is supposed to be like horrified and find it funny at the same time. <laughs> but then it's like at some point, it's like she finds that people, some people are really harassing them and are being really nasty to them. And she discovers that they have a sad backstory and she feels kind of bad. And so she stands up for them and defends them. And this is somehow presented as like, uh, you know, Roseanne is the character has you know, redeemed herself, she's done the right thing, and she's, like, been morally vindicated or whatever in helping that, even though she really has done almost nothing. She just sort of, she just basically told, like, the, like, the nastier racist to stop. Uh, and, but that's, that's a very Norman Lear-esque thing, right? Like, Archie Bunker could spend a whole episode, you know, being racist, but then it's, like, somebody's more racist, and Archie's, like, no, no, you're wrong, and that's, like, somehow it's, like, he's, like, the hero. And so I think that's exactly the type of comedy you're describing, right? It's, like, this uh, almost sort of a reductionist approach of of taking the citizenship approach to a to a the most simplistic level. It's like you're a good citizen if all you do is just say, actually, you're wrong. No matter, you know, I don't have to do anything else. I just have to say this, and that makes me a good person, a good citizen. You know, one one thing that occurred to me is, you know, in the course of this conversation, it's not something I had really thought about very much because I don't really like watch sitcoms as such. But um, uh, but it did occur to me that like one of the difficulties in showing political development is that, you know, if you are confined to this, um, you know, 20 or 30 minute, uh, 20 or 30 minute like scene, like it's not just the case that you don't have enough, uh, you don't have enough time to show the development but also that like, you know, in real life, right, people change, they get different jobs, they do different things, they move. Um, and by and large, things don't stay the same. Um, whereas, and, and if you were to have somebody, let's say, run for office and win, you would be faced with just the basic formal problem of incorporating that into the show and like you couldn't really do it right you do you know like nobody wants to watch a sitcom i mean you know even even i guess parks and recs and rec is not really about that right but nobody's going to want to watch a sitcom about like the county clerk or whatever right it's or you know if they were it wouldn't people of that sensibility would not have wanted to see that right so like you can't have somebody win the county clerk election and then actually go and be the county clerk because that would involve like rewriting the entire show Right. So, uh, so just like as a formal problem, you can see where, where that like starts to, uh, starts to become difficult, uh, because you have to, because again, you have to like constantly like reintegrate everything, you know, as long as the focus is like on the family, you have to continue reintegrating everything into the 
arena of domesticity and you can't do that if what you have is like all this other stuff that's happening outside of it um that you have to that you would have to address if you were to try to maintain like some level of plot continuity um and and like to piggyback on that uh i was you know it's interesting to me how closely this like sort of this especially you know reading your descriptions of all in the family like and how like at various points you know archie bunker like does like stand whatever stands up to like people who are even more racist than he is or he does something nice for like you know a jewish relative or something like that like okay great uh but you know how like narrow i guess that vision is in the sense that like okay well you did something nice for this person who you know personally but like that's not like a huge achievement like we're all, you know a lot of people are nice to people they know right it's like a little bit more difficult to be like kind of you know expand your your notion of like who counts expand your circle of care so to speak to people that you don't know or that you know are very different from you um and so yeah it, you know it really does seem very very limited in that in that sense and but then but then again at the same time if you try to sort of step outside of it you run into this formal problem of like okay well what do you how do you actually do that how do you how do you show that and i don't know that like i i again not being a tv guy i really don't know whether to what extent anybody has really solved that problem as such and i don't know if like you have any thoughts about that like what do you, do you think like the more modern i mean like you know more modern shows like have have they done better at this or are we still just like constantly circling back to this sort of like world of you know three four five different people and uh you know sort of little little blips that you know enter their like little you know satellites that enter their orbit and leave and we're just like perpetually just recreating that that uh kind of um scenario in in all the tv programs I think we've gotten definitely more sophisticated. That sounds right. We've gotten TV shows that uh, have different types of storytelling. They break away from the continuity-free zone. They do other things. But I, I think you're right, though. To some extent, it's just the nature of the, the the culture of TV, right? Like we don't. Nobody wants to watch a TV show in which the main characters just, you know, change everything about them on a, you know so suddenly just as you said in real life things change all the time people get new jobs they move a uh, family member we see for a little while then we never see again or we don't see very often or something and i don't think people necessarily like their tv shows to be that messy and so even even shows that are you know far more experimental or critically acclaimed i don't think you're necessarily going to see them completely meager uh, uh real life in that sense and so I do think, though, that there's something about the sitcom, especially the family sitcom, but even the sitcom in general, that is just so constrained in the things you were talking about, though, so aggressively trying to keep everything within the same sphere, whether that sphere is the, uh, the home or the, uh, the workplace, like a lot of like workplace sitcoms. There's just something about trying to keep things the same or trying to keep the same orbit of people uh, in every every episode or everything. And so trying to present, as you said, something about what if I really cared about people that uh, don't physically 
I don't physically come in contact with, or I'm, there are not my family members that are not my friends. They're not even in my community. I think that's just very hard to do in a TV setting. I think you could do it, but I think it would be very, very hard, especially within the limitations of the sitcom. I mean, I was, people people have said that TV is an inherently individualistic medium. I don't know yeah. if that, do you agree with that? And why is that? Uh, individualistic in what way? Well, that's what I'm sort of asking you. I've heard this, <laughs> the, the, this buzzer, you know, well, individualistic in the viewer sense. So like you're passively sitting there. Now, it seems to me like that's not unique among forms of entertainment. Um, but also in, you know, this whole conversation has been about kind of like, conflict being resolved through if anything individual actions or 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 sayings as opposed to collective actions um you know so that seems like if that you know if there is a through line in like the themes and plots of tv shows that has that element then maybe there is something to the the idea that it's an individualistic medium not just because somebody's sitting there watching it taking it in and not really participating yeah i mean i think in terms of like uh uh individualistic and viewership i think it's definitely like people don't tend to watch tv shows in like gigantic groups or we don't think of it as a gigantic group action but i also think especially in terms of sitcoms i don't know how much of it we really watch on an individual an extremely singular individual level uh in fact these shows i doubt a whole lot of people are watching them as one individual like i don't think one single individual sitting down to watch father knows best i'm assuming they're watching it with their family or their nuclear family or their family unit or something and i didn't touch on this i didn't really touch on the audience aspects but that's a really interesting point about how uh what's the difference in in you watching it with your your own children or your own spouse versus you watching it singularly like nowadays we certainly will individually binge watch singularly a lot of programs and comedies but these programs are not really meant to do that they're meant to be consumed in a very different way so well and also everyone's watching them at the same time i mean for that reason right. that yeah. that uh you, know, you don't you don't have um you know watch on demand and streaming platforms or whatever it's like it is kind of false to say it's individualistic because even if everyone is passive in interacting with it they're all doing it at the same time and it's in you know in that sense a more um uh unitary culture you know and i i I guess that the shows themselves are designed to be as broadly appealing as possible i was just going to say too like marshall anticipated some of what i was going to ask mike but my my question um had to do with sort of do you think american television developed to be so individually focused, uh, you know, essentially because of that was like the idea that was recruited to the material, the cult, the, the need, the ideological needs of the material culture. In other words, like what post what post war American society needed and and wanted was a like reflection and reification of a nuclear family upon which like you know which would be the the tip of the spear that would you know stab the heart of the Soviets or whatever. Um, and that, you know, obviously like we're constrained by that idea. Now we have in our minds that like television shows typically focus on, you know, a smaller cast of characters, um, and their individual storylines, but obviously, you know, maybe if the medium had developed differently with, you know, different ideological needs to serve a different material reality, then perhaps we would be talking about the fact that TV is this great medium for showing how, you know, a couple individual representative stories and like a milieu of millions of people in like a different way that like we can't really even conceptualize because that's just not the way that like television has developed. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. 
I, I mean, I think I see what you're saying. Like the, the idea of like how TV, I think TV does match some of the, the concern about concern about both the individual and the society and then like in the post-war era. And I think, I think we do see that, but I also think TV is coming from the, uh, I heard somebody say like about the idea of radio contrasting radio with either the theater or movies that like, as opposed to theater or movies, which are explicitly pitched at groups, large groups, radio is, is built for a very small group, maybe even just one or two people. And I think TV kind of is the the inheritor of that idea that its very nature is is playing towards a much more smaller audience and as marshall said though it's it's an audience that is very big across the country all receiving it at the same time but it's in their own individual units it's a very small audience it's almost a very individual audience well and, and as jerry was saying you know sitcoms maybe didn't really even exist in like the soviet union i you know I don't think any of us can sit here and, as experts on Soviet TV and say that that's definitively true, but obviously you don't really know. I mean, I don't really have any sort of cultural awareness of like, you know, um, these sort of hyper individual like story, you know, family unit stories uh, as arising from like Soviet media, the Soviet media that I know mainly in movies is, I mean, it, you know, it, it focuses on individuals because somebody has to be in the shot, but I mean, like it's, there, it strikes me that like it does reflect that the difference, the different material culture that that was present in the Soviet Union, in that like it was ex, you know expressly trying to convey stories that have more of like a sociological or like societal importance than necessarily like equating what is happening in the family as like inherently societally important, as was sort of the ideology, especially in like 1950s America, you know. I mean, you know, as far as as far as sitcoms in uh, the Soviet Union are concerned, I mean, the, one of the most um, one of the most successful or per, you know adaptations of uh, or rather one of the most the the first the first big successful Russian post Soviet sitcom was an adaptation of Married with Children. There was like a big uh, Vulture article about this like not that long ago, uh, which was kind of interesting to me. I mean, like I, this had been. Um, you know, this happened in the early 2000s. So this was well after Married with Children itself had had its run. And it was also certainly well after I had immigrated. Uh, so it's not something that I had ever been exposed to or that I think anybody that in my uh, sort of like uh, circle of uh, people that I know from there had, would have watched. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing about it was that they had to they had no idea how these things were done. So um, they were essentially rediscovering the wheel while they were doing this, right? Well, they were doing this adaptation. So they knew kind of, they had a, they had some, they had American advisors uh, help out with the, with the adaptation. And some of the people who were doing it themselves had, you know, lived in the West. And so uh, had some conception of sort of the, the, um, uh, the uh, tools, let's say, or the formalisms of uh, sitcom television, but they did not really know they did not have that production of sitcoms as like a just a, a sort of, uh, you know, a, a tool at hand, if you will, uh, lying around that, you know, a, that, that a cultural milieu like America would have had. Right. I mean, like you don't have to like really learn how to make sitcoms in the U.S. And they had to learn because they had no idea. And again, you know. Well, luckily, 
luckily, Jerry, you know, the entire Harvard economics department, Andre Schleifer, Jeffrey Sachs, they all came over and shared all their cliff notes. That's on, right. On That's how they learned children. to do it correctly. And, you know, we were able to, to, you know, impart that, that cultural knowledge through one of our most beloved institutions, the Harvard, uh, you know, Harvard University economics department. If people aren't familiar with Andre Schleifer, by the way, that's something worth looking up. He was like an, uh, <laughs> he was an American economist who went over to Russia, basically like set up the, awarded himself the first, uh, the ability to create the first mutual fund in Russia, despite the fact that he was, that was like not what he was supposed to be doing, made just gajillions of dollars. Uh, you know, Jeffrey Sachs also, I don't know how much he was doing self-dealing, but Schleifer definitely was. Larry Summers was there too. He was, he was like the, you know, Schleifer was like the protege of Summers and, you know, was basically using Summers as like a shield for all. Yeah, of the and then the bottom fell out of this um, thing, and then. And this well, is this is. Well, and Andrew, we may we may have to do a formal apology, or else be liable for millions of dollars, because Jeffrey Sachs was absolutely not involved in the corruption that you're referring to. <laughs> oh well, he corruption. was in Russia, though. He was in Russia. Yes, though. yes, yes. The yeah. whole internal politi uh, politics of Harvard was that Schleifer and Summers were in one faction. This is in the 90s right, right, right. Summers. And Summers. I, I know that. I I, I yeah. think I clarified that Summer that Sachs was not involved in the corruption when in my initial remarks. Right. So I, well, I just I want to make sure that we don't. He just destroyed an entire country and you know helped create the like the largest setback in living standards seen in modern recorded history. He didn't actually personally like. It's, it's the official the position so. of this podcast that that we're not we're not implicating uh, uh, Sachs in uh, in in self dealing specifically. <laughs> Correct. Uh, but you know, the funny, the fun thing about Schleifer is that his whole scheme is like why Ikea is now the, uh, you know, uh, holder of like all of Romania's old growth forests. I keep, Harvard I keep meaning to read this. You're spoiling it for me. <laughs> it's like in my tabs. It's in my tabs. As I say. I've just been doing a little bit of reading on the Harvard economics department yeah. recently and just, uh, <laughs> you know, marveling at the, at the wonders that can be uncovered there. When I was watching, you know, Soviet TV in the, um, this would have been the mid eighties. Right. So, um, the things that stand out in my memory, it's all like, like I said, war movies. I mean, there was obviously, you know, news propaganda, whatever, like none of that stuff is interesting when you're five years old, you tend not to watch it. Uh, yeah, there's a, like a lot, like I said, a lot of war movies, um, a lot of like documentaries, um, of all kinds, uh, in, including adaptations of Western stuff that did not have political valence. Uh, for example, David Attenborough was, hugely popular right i mean it's just like about animals say right? animals are cool like it was you know it was dubbed over and i you know watched so so you're basically saying soviet television was exactly what newton minnow was saying in u.s television. um well you know some parts of it maybe i don't know i mean the david attenborough was great i love that um uh but uh other stuff you know it comes and goes i don't think that they had any kind of like the sitcom would have been a confusing import was a confusing import for russians and would not have like jived with the uh the soviet self-conception i guess i would say it would have been it would have been baffling to them it's kind of funny because sitcom sounds like a russian word <laughs> that is funny because um you know for for uh any of our listeners who do not speak the russian language russian has a uh very in my view sometimes an extremely annoying habit of uh, constructing portmanteaus and not just from like a, a single, not from just two words, but from like three, four, five words, uh, especially uh, when it relates to. Um, so, like, for example, the uh, Youth Communist League is uh, Komsomol, which means uh, the uh, 
what was it? I, I forget what this specific abbreviation was, but it was like it's, it stands for like the the communist Soviet like young persons organization. So it's like four words that they where they mash the syllables together, and then you listen, you you hear that, and you're like, what the fuck are they talking about? Like why why is like this is not a real word? And then you go like you look it up, and it's like oh, this is actually like five words combined. Um, so anyway, like that's that's how but that's how people talk. Sitcom really is a Russian word. Sitcom, that specific formulation would have actually been extremely familiar to them. Like the actual word sitcom would have made perfect sense. One thing that I would I would like to touch on that struck me from from actually like watching a few clips of some of the episodes that Mike cites in his thesis uh, is how the sort of evolution of uh, racial representation in sitcoms evolved, and. One thing that struck me, and Mike, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but like an interesting thing about like sort of the early sitcoms is that they're very procedurally racist in the sense that like when they, you know, there's an episode where um, I think it's My Three Sons, right? With the, where uh, one of the three sons uh, is being pursued by a Chinese girl romantically. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she, uh, you know, is, is using a supposed old Chinese custom where he saved her from being hit by a bus, which the shot of her almost getting hit by a bus is really funny. It's like, it's not even close to hitting her, but anyways, um, so she, she has to then be his like, you know, peon. Uh, and then he, he likes this at first, but then he gets annoyed. Uh, and then there's a scene, there's, a, <laughs> there's a scene where it's like, she's going to go see her, uh, uh, you know, wise old grandfather who's, you know, who has like a Fu Manchu and like, you know, talks about bringing honor and dishonor to the family. And, you know, like as she's going in there, you get like the sort of the Asian kind of like, do, 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 you know, that, that kind of riff goes on. And like, you know, like it's very, I would say it's very procedurally like racist. And I mean, in a way that like, it's, it just sort of uses like tropes of being Chinese basically. Right. Um, in a way that like, we wouldn't expect to see in an episode of like Modern Family or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, it's not really substantively, it's not very racist in the sense that like at, at base, it's kind of goes without it, even, it, it really goes without saying that like, oh, it's totally normal for like, you know, this white guy to be being pursued and to kind of like being pursued by a Chinese woman, like the families are interacting with each other in a way that's like, kind of like very respectful and like, you know, it acknowledges the fact that they wear like you know, different traditional clothing and stuff like that. But like, none of it is just like, oh, that's, that's really messed up that you, you know, and it's, you know, they don't really play like the Chinese people being Chinese for laughs, uh, you know, you know, in, in like a derogatory way, maybe there's like some kind of posing at like the right. differences, but like generally speaking, like the racism is mostly procedural. Um, when you get to like the, the Norman Lear sitcoms, the way that race is portrayed is a little bit different, um, but it still has, uh, it, it doesn't essentialize with like that kind of same kind of music or whatever and in fact like most of what's going on is like Archie sort of through his reactionary viewpoint is kind of like saying something very offensive like outright very offensive about you know the Jews or the blacks right. or whatever and then you know so one of his you know the hippie son-in-law or his daughter or even his wife sometimes kind of steps in and says you know Archie that's going too far uh and now, and now I'm just, the thing that I, I find kind of interesting is just like, you know, you would not be allowed to do like the procedural racism of like having chopsticks play as the Asian character is introduced right. and stuff like that. But like, there isn't necessarily also either this sort of underlying idea that like, 
well, everyone's just sort of the same, but you know, maybe they have their different customs. Like there's actually in a sub in a substantive sense, there's actually like in in a lot of contemporary media, this idea that like there is sort of like a, a, a racial essentialism that we all must sort of respect about each other. And I wonder like, do you think that that has any sort of tracing through this period? Or is that like more of like a modern sort of development of like, you know, po like almost like post-Trump era racial politics? Hmm. I don't, I don't know like about, I don't know if it's post-Trump necessarily. I do agree that it's, it's, it's very different. Uh, like, as you said, you watch these shows, they present, usually they're presenting racial minorities or ethnic minorities as explicitly very different. But as you said, that even to the point of like, almost like Asian stereotypes or what have you, or if it's a, a Mexican character, they really play up the, the accent, the, you know, the, the language barrier, so on. So they really play up these things in a much more explicit, probably almost even racist way than we would now. But as you said, it's not, as you said, what did you say? It's like procedurally racist, but thematically not or something like that. Like it's that the, the, the message they're trying to get across is is racial tolerance and yeah it does it in a sort of paternalistic sense it usually usually the lesson in some sense is that the racism is overcome through being a good citizen showing good good tolerance to people showing but usually it also involves the the racial or ethnic outsider changing in some sense so like as you said that episode about the slave girl when she stops acting like a slave girl and stops acting stereotypically asian then she's more She's more, she becomes more attractive. Uh, in other episodes, it's like characters who, who are depicted as sort of foreign or exotic, if they become quote more Americanized, then they become more accepted into members as members of the community. And I think you're right that I think that nowadays, I don't know if TV is willing to necessarily depict the foreigner or the, the racial minority as so exotic or othered at the beginning uh, in, in these programs. But uh, I also do, I don't necessarily know when that starts or when that changes. I don't think it's necessarily a post-Trump thing. I was thinking more like the the sort of, you know, like there's there's a certain sort of tendency in, in, in some kind it like uh, like Afro pessimism, for instance, is a, like a ideological tendency that basically says that like, you know, uh, being black is like a distinct racial category that like is is sort of persistent and like there's really like nothing you can do about it on some level uh, i'm probably travestying that that ideological position to some extent but like it it, it implies uh, you know like what we're talking about with in sort of like the 50s and maybe even into the rg bunker is more of like sort of a melting pot conception of racial identity where you know okay well you, you might look a little different you might have some different customs but at the end of the day the the goal is that we all move toward being you know some kind of common human stock or american stock basically um whereas like you know i think you would i think that that is like a problematic narrative now i mean it, it is a problematic narrative generally speaking but it seems to me that like what has replaced it is you know in some ways is also a bit problematic because it seemed it if you carry out some of the, the logical steps of like what's going on with with these sort of like narrative with these like contemporary racial narratives they sort of imply like a racial essentialism that right. like is is unbreakable and like that is is not really uh commensurate with like an idea of like race as like a social construct basically which is you know essentially 
I, I mean, I think you'd have a hard time disagreeing that like race on some level is a social construct. So I'm just wondering what you think. I don't know, like if you think that like we're sort of like at a an interrupted point in in sort of like how race is being depicted in in televised media, or if this is you know prefigured by something that happened you know either in the 50s or with with Lear or whatever. I I, I don't exactly know what I'm going here. I just it just struck me that there's a big difference between how you'd see race portrayed in the 50s versus now. But like you wouldn't, I think the thing that's kind of surprising about it is, is if you look at the thing that that shows in the fifties, it's like it it's not like like a disgusting portrayal of race in a way that right. you might imagine. It's not like a caricatured version of. I mean, it is caricatured, I guess, but it's not like it's not like caricatured in a way that doesn't have like a, a baseline sort of tolerance to it or something like that, which you might not expect, I guess. You know. Yeah, I would agree. I think that the, it's a caricatured form, but it, there's a. There's almost a sense of like, I don't know, you said like earnestness about these things that as as paternalistic, as probably pretty stereotypical and racist and as un uncool as they are in some ways, it's it's just something that you don't see almost explicitly being depicted in TV nowadays. Like TV nowadays, there's obviously little lessons about race or about racial tolerance, but in some sense, I don't know if they would it almost has to sort of make it all kind of seem, you know, playing on stereotypes or playing on conventions. Like there's no way, like the, what do you, what do you expect nowadays in a program that does the same thing is that the, the foreigner character is actually depicted as more American than the, uh, than the white characters or something, or they try to play on these stereotypes and they try to, uh, they try not to be as explicit in the othering, but whether or not, I don't know if I'm expressing this right, but I think there's something about like maybe that the full-on othering or exotic exoticizingness of the foreigner though maybe makes the message stand out differently than today. But I think I think you're right. I think it's just interesting how that that's changed. But I don't I don't know when it did change. This is a probably uh, I would say probably a poorly formulated thought because I don't have uh, any particular good evidence for it. But I wonder if this depiction of you know this depiction of like people you know non-white people let's say in general um whether that shift was part of this uh shift from this idea that was sort of dominant in you know the post-war society that we just had to like integrate kind of into integrate as a is maybe not the right word here because it's fraught with you know political uh certain political implications but we had to subsume kind of everybody's identity under this common Americanism. And then in the seventies and later, what you're experiencing is the fallout of the way that that idea just couldn't work because that subsumption fundamentally demanded that those people uh, be subservient, right? They, they, they had to, they, in order to be subsumed under like the common American umbrella, they also had to be subservient to sort of the majority ethos or the majority ethnic um the majority ethnic style i guess you could say and so that and so when that fails right then now you're seeing the fallout of that and you're seeing and you're seeing that it reflected in uh sitcoms like uh like all in the family i, I wonder if that's a if that's a plausible uh interpretation on your view no i, I think it definitely is like i think that the the message of a lot of these post-war sitcoms is integration using in the non-political sense yeah, using yeah, in the sense right, of being part right. of the overall community 
yeah, that you see this this character, this Hispanic character, or this uh, uh, Asian character, and that they they should be part of the community. We should be friends with them. Sometimes it's, this will probably involve them changing in some way, assimilating. Like you know, they they need to wear different clothing or speak English better. But then if the it's the responsibility then of the good citizen to help them do those things. By the time we get to Norman Lear, though, that that's that's a very passe idea, and that uh, the racial or ethnic problems can't be solved that way. And that there's almost like a sense of a mockery of that idea. So, well, I was just gonna say too, like it's both an ideological you know, uh, issue in the sense that like, you know, there's an inherent tension between, you know, uh, uh, being a part of a majority culture and like preserving one's minority identity. But there's also like an extreme material element to this too, I think, in the sense that like, who was excluded from the post-war boom, you know, uh, who was not allowed to buy homes in the suburbs nearly to the extent that like, you know, white people were, who was excluded from what really was like sort of uh, the creation, as you say in your dissertation, of a white suburban American identity out of like an ethnic urban white identity, you know, Italians and Jewish people and well, maybe Jewish people to a lesser extent, but Italians and Irish and, you know, British people and all these people who, have, who had been living in various places, you know, and maybe had some distinct ethnic character to their culture in the cities once they moved into the suburbs it was okay for you know a hungarian to marry an italian or you know whatever a italian to marry an irish person or i mean you know even like there was actually like a pretty common um genre about specifically about irish people marrying jewish people yeah. i don't know why that is but <laughs> but it's not um, like a like a, there like was, a oh, so what's his uh, name? like shit I'm gonna look this up because, like, my my brain is shot. Abby's there's, Irish there's Rose. That's, Irish right. Rose. That's what it is. It's there's, like, there's, oh, yeah, Abby. Yeah, okay, it's it's Abby though, because it's for Abraham, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bridget loves. Um, and then there's the the Kellys and the Cohens. Is that what it's called? Yeah. There's there, there was like a vaudeville act that was like, it, I, I forget what the, you know, it's got a very offensive name that involves two racial stereotypes, I think, but it was, you know, it was a Jewish guy and an Irish guy yeah. and they would do racial stereotypes to each other. Um, actually, I was, I was interested when you, when you were talking about, uh, when we were talking about like the urban sitcoms yeah. versus suburban sitcoms, and, and also when we were talking about like sort of, you know, I guess you could say like Jewish comedy or ethnic comedy versus, you know, the sitcom comedy. Were sitcoms mostly made by like, wasps like white protestants in terms of who made them i, I don't want to make any i don't want to get say anything explicit because i don't fully know the ethnicities of all the, like the producers sure producers, sure sure but like the, the the cast members are definitely uh almost wholly wasp so i find that kind of interesting because it's like you know the the last the lasting comedy tends to be like the, the ethnic comedy basically is the comedy that people remember and like the sort of mainstream culture comedy the comedy of like the dominant white uh, suburban culture is generally speaking, like, you know, it kind of fades into like an ideological common sense or background as opposed to like, you know, survives in terms of, and we don't have that kind of show really anymore. Like you said, I mean, like Roseanne might be a good example of like one of the sort of survivals of that uh, before it was canceled or whatever, but like even modern family is not really like that because it's like a bigger cast. It's, you know, focused on a lot more, different kinds of families like this kind of the whole point i guess um but you know that like 
and I, 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 I'm not really a connoisseur of, you know, network television. So, so I don't, I don't know what's on TV now. And maybe there is a show that's kind of like that, but you know, the nineties had a lot of shows like that. And it seems like they kind of, you know, as, as maybe like the needs of our culture have changed that like that kind of show is not really as necessary anymore because it's not like reinforcing the same kind of, you know, cultural standards that we even had maybe in the nineties, you know, when it was, 90s being kind of the last gasp of, of like the 20th century post-war yeah. suburban lifestyle is like the sort of american way of living or whatever yeah i mean like aren't the two biggest i mean the 90s are like now we're talking like you know the era of my childhood so i've seen i saw a few few more uh shows on tv at that at that time but like you know my impression is that the kind of the the biggest shows on tv uh well, the biggest sitcoms on TV are probably like Seinfeld and Friends, right? Yeah, Seinfeld and Friends, the the single single shows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like there's also obviously like non comedy. There's stuff, but like, but you know, of the sitcoms, like those are the two biggest ones, and those actually are both urban comedies, right? I mean, there's also like Sex and the City, I guess. Well, there's also like you know, Married with Children as yeah, like but Married with Children had its run like in the late '80s, right? That's it starts in the late '80s and it runs for the '90s. I think of that mostly as like a 90s show, yeah. but I, I don't know exactly the periodization there. But, it, but it's riffing, obviously, on the family sitcom. Right. It's like a, almost yeah, but like it does. But it is it, interesting so. how that like sort of the, the urban the urban sitcom does like actually make a comeback. Right. And, uh, you know, certainly, <laughs> you know, certainly in the in the context of something like Seinfeld, it would have been um, I feel like I feel like Seinfeld is a show that would have been like totally incomprehensible in like 1955. But if you brought a person, if you brought like a, a like a Jew from the tenements of the 1920s and you were like you like sat them down and had them watch Seinfeld, like they would get it. They would get that better than they would get the sitcoms of the 50s. Yeah. Well, Seinfeld is a very I mean, Seinfeld has explicitly said this. It's a very vaudeville throwback right. style humor in a lot of ways and so yeah well i mean it's a, it's expressly jewish humor for one thing right. you know you know people i mean people remember friends because people still watch friends but i don't think like the comedy of stylings of friends necessarily are like enduring in the way that like the comedy stylings of seinfeld are if that makes sense like i, I mean my again my, my sense is is that seinfeld has many ideological descendants in a way that like you know i i don't know does friends have them like it was very popular, but does it have like epigones? I don't know. Right. I yeah, I, I don't know. Either. I think people at the time, and this is obviously wrong from a historical viewpoint, but people at the time were saying <laughs> Friends was the ideological descendant of Seinfeld because they looked at it both as, oh, it's young single people living in the New York City doing things. So I think maybe as like a last little thing that we can talk about, what do you think about the end of mass television? You know, one thing that Marshall talked about was something that I think about a lot, which is uh, the fact of the loss of synchronicity in watching television. You know, most people don't watch TV uh, at the same time that everyone else is watching TV anymore. And I mean, I personally feel like a pretty big loss from that because like one of the things that I, I sort of liked about watching TV, especially when you're watching at like a weird time, like if you're watching, you know, a movie on TNT at three in the morning on like a Thursday or something, you see those advertisements and you know that someone else is seeing those advertisements. And you think, what kind of person yeah. are they trying to sell like this insurance to at like three in the morning? Cause it's not me, it's somebody else, but who is it? You know, you kind of, there's like, there's a certain communal aspect of like, you know, even if you're by yourself or like I, my brother and I used to watch TV late at night a lot um, when I was home from college in the summer. And uh, you know, you get that, 
it was like a sort of isolating experience, you know, but it was also like there was a certain like communal aspect to it. And that's been totally lost. And with it has been lost the era of like mass TV, like maybe Game of Thrones was like the last show that everybody really, you know, it was like everybody watched it uh, and everybody watched it like pretty much at the same time. Right because like it was really important that you watch it at the same time i'm i did i should say that i made the correct decision never to watch that show so um you know uh i didn't have to deal with any of that anguish but you know people were like oh my god i gotta watch it on sunday night at nine or whatever so that i when i can look at twitter tomorrow or whatever you know like but that that's kind of gone now and now we have a million streaming services and a million channels it's impossible to know every show that comes out anymore i mean there used to be three networks for god's sake you know now there's how how many different platforms and networks are there, you know, what I, I don't know, like what does the history tell us about this, if anything? It's it's really hard to say because it's I think that the the trends you're saying are very real and I, they certainly show no sign of stopping. I mean, I think you're right that I don't know if you're ever going to get a TV program airing on a specific night in which everyone's like, oh, I, as you said, I got to watch it on that time slot. Maybe maybe a non uh, uh, scripted type show is the closest thing we can get well, to sports, it, like a reality sports. show or the Super Bowl. Yeah, Sport, sports. But even now, of sports, I've been faced a dilemma sometimes of it's possible to watch sports, you know, on a delay, and it's like, do I have to avoid social media, you know, for hours in order to watch it or whatever? But uh, it's yeah. So like a sporting event or a uh, reality show is something maybe that keeps that communal spirit going, the synchronicity. The one thing I'm not sure on, and I think there's obviously a very real impact on, is if TV is not as synchronous as it was, what's the impact on the the pedagogical aspects of TV? Is TV more effective or less effective at instilling these lessons if it's not, if people aren't experiencing it in the the old synchronous way? My first instinct would be say less effective, but I don't know if that's right, because I think that uh, especially with with children i mean we think about tv tv for children now is extremely asynchronous and it's very effective at teaching so but i don't know if that's true for everybody and i don't know if that's true if the way people experience tv is different and the whole tv watching experience is ridiculously different right like if you're watching it as you said a on a eight o'clock p.m primetime show in a typical format on abc versus a a tv show at 3 a.m on tnt or a streaming service, or you're skipping all the commercials, or what? So I mean, you, people are experiencing TV in so many different ways that maybe the impact uh, isn't as big uh, as it was. Maybe the impact is harder to, I guess, generalize. Well, it, it strikes me just thinking about that. You know, to the extent that like TV also includes like watching stuff on YouTube or whatever. Obviously, that remains incredibly effective as like you know. Uh, tool of inculcation but you know uh, such an important part of it now is that you don't have to ever watch anything you like disagree with you have such a wide selection of like all the things that you could possibly watch and you know a lot of it just becomes self-reinforcing for whatever you know uh you decide that you want or whatever i mean in the case of youtube i guess you know famously whatever the algorithm decides you know whenever it decides that like you need to be watching a lot more ben shapiro like there there you go and then maybe like you know two or three years later it's just serving you up nothing but like you know prager you and neo-nazi videos or something i mean that's just sort of a stereotype i don't i mean obviously i'm not the kind of person who goes down that kind of youtube spiral so i don't know but um you know it's 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 certainly striking that like you know with such a wide variety of options like you're not 
really forced to pick like one out of the three things that are on TV at right. seven o'clock on a Thursday, if you want to watch TV at that time, you know, and back in the day, of course, you know, that there was, I mean, I, I maybe, what do you think about like the, the sort of the parallel between when uh, like sort of the golden age of TV with like the networks and also sort of like the sort of consensus history and like this move toward like mid mid cult and like, you know, middle brow culture and like, you know, split down the middle, like we're going to try to find the consensus on everything. Those seems like they're kind of like par parallel or re mutually reinforcing tendencies like within the culture. I think in some ways they relate because as you said that when you have this golden age of TV, it's the three, four channels, uh, you don't, you know, when people talk about the new golden age of TV now, referring to like the multiplicity of channels and streaming things that allows for a lot of different uh, uh, options and uh, more of a diversity, I guess, in programming, but it's, it's harder to create any kind of standardized, what I would call culture from that, right? Yeah, uh, I, I was just thinking too, like every sort of cultural output had like sort of a firm foundation in the mid-century, which was that we hate the communists, we hate the godless, you know, Chinese and Soviets. And like, we're going, you know, what we need to do is to, you know, like we might be a Republican, we might be a Democrat, we might be rich, we might be poor, we might be black, white, Hispanic, whatever, uh, man, woman, child, it doesn't matter. We all hate those commies. And like, you know, we don't really have that anymore. Uh, there's no like sort of, you know, overriding like mythos to like, you know, provide foundation for like the grand narrative of like American life. And so now, I mean, I don't know if you think that that's like sort of the, the causal factor, or if it's like more like the sort of just change in material conditions of like, well, we have all these platforms now and like the imperatives of all these different channels and stuff. But like, what do you think explains this, you know, just incredible like branching out and like diffusion of cultural energy away from this sort of like main channel of, you know, whether that was like having three channels on TV or having, you know, sort of a shared conception of like what, what American history was or, you know, all these other things that obviously like they're very problematic narratives in and of yeah, themselves. Yeah. But like, you know, there was like people had like a firm footing of like, this is what reality is or whatever. It's, it's just a multiplicity of things. I mean, we, we see this in there's a lot of different media uh I think you've right you, you kind of alluded to this, right? That's very possible then to consume you know, a particular strain of media, not just TV, but anything that, that doesn't uh, move out of your particular ideology or that. And so I think when you have the both the technology, the means and the audience that wants that, I think you're going to have popular culture and TV that matches that. I was thinking about what you guys said, you said like sporting events around the few things in which really brings everybody together to watch something at the same time. And you can, you see this when you, you look at like during the Super Bowl when you look at social media and you see what's trending and so on. But I think that's also a way which we could still see, you know, as silly as it is, uh, narratives are still are being formed in real time because of that, right? Something happens in a, in a World Series or a Super Bowl game or whatever, and it starts trending and you can very easily see the trends in which the people want you to think about it, right? That it's, this is, you know, so-and-so did something disgusting or so-and-so did something hilarious. And that's, that's, that's the narrative. And there might be people who challenge the narrative, but voila, we have a narrative created. There's going to be people who are discussing it ad nauseum, talking about it on podcasts like this. Uh, and so 
that's one of the few ways in which I think we still see, uh, I wouldn't call them grand narratives, but certainly narratives form yeah. in real time yeah. that we don't see as much with TV shows and because of their nature of being so asynchronous and so on. So I think that's, that's, that still shows to me the potential of, of TV uh, as a narrative forming device, because look, mm -hmm. look what it, we, we see proof of that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, do you think that that explains partly like why people get so mad when like, you know, don't get those sport, get those politics out of my sports, you know, uh, because it's like one of these last places where like everybody watches it and everybody's kind of, you know, has a has a stake in it and can't really opt out of it in the same way that you can just say like, oh, that TV shows, you know, the, the, the libs got to them. They, it's too, you know, that TV show is too, uh, too liberal or too conservative or, you know, whatever. It doesn't show, doesn't depict, uh, you know, minorities in the right way or doesn't depict white culture in the right way or, you know, any, any variety of things that like you can kind of pull the ripcord on for a TV show. You can just not care about sports and plenty of people don't. But I mean, you know, that like, especially things like the Super Bowl or whatever, it's like one of the few things that like everybody kind of cares about still, you know? It's it's a lot as you said it's it's a lot of the last big kind of real time mass TV events and that to me it's also why everything about a sporting event is on social media anyway is hyper analyzed right so it's yeah. like so and so it's like oh I can't believe Chris Collinsworth said this or whatever it's like you know <laughs> uh -huh. he should be you know he should be fired or so and so should be that and so things in which. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we, to an extent, we always had these ideas watching sports, but I think we had these ideas watching all of TV. And so like 50 years ago, what if Twitter existed, would we all be mass tweeting? Oh, I can't believe, you know, this is happening on all in the family or something. <laughs> uh, so we could, we could, you know, it'd be great for a historian because we could see the real time narrative reaction, but the, we don't have that with any TV show. I think the last, the last thing that I can remember where like a TV show, like really made the rounds, uh, at least on Twitter was probably game of Thrones. Uh, that was like the last thing where people were like watching it. Cause it was, because it was serialized and it did come out. Like the new episodes would drop every, whatever it was like Sunday. I don't know, whatever the fuck it was, but like people would watch it and then everybody would like react to it the next day. And people, uh, you know, at least in certain, circles of uh of, of of media like devoted like podcasts to it since then i can't think of anything that has really like caught fire in the same way that game of thrones did like that was a genuine phenomenon you know whether you like it or don't but since then i can't think of anything because you know even the things that kind of catch on now like remember this is another thing I didn't watch, but you know, when everyone was watching, Oh yeah. Tiger. King, yeah. A lot of people were watching now they're Tiger come King, out but with, even that, even yeah, but, now they're going to come out with a fucking live action version, like a, like an acted version yeah, of yeah, Tiger King, which was like, it's like the, the, the hyper loop of like, you know, uh, do you remember this thing? Oh yeah. I do remember it. It happened two years ago. This is right. I mean, uh, you know, we've all obviously read and committed to memory the, uh, you know, Fred Jameson's classic uh, postmodernism, Right. Um, uh, but this is like the, you know, we're living in like the era of just uh, hyper, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, just extreme pastiche, you know, where everything is just like ground up in, and, and like reground and like just reprocessed just to see if you can get, can you get like a squeeze, like a little bit more juice out of this thing? And it's like, okay, like what more do you want? Like, there's just like not that much material there. Uh, but as long as you just keep like redoing the, the same thing, but slightly differently, um, then, 
you know, you can get a lot of people to watch that. And there's like the, you don't have to like create any new intellectual property, really. You've already bought up everything that exists. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess in that sense, it was sort of like, you know, Game of Thrones was a surprise because it was like this weird thing that like really only nerds read. And then all of a sudden it just like kind of exploded onto the scene. I mean, you could say the same thing about like all these stupid comic books. Yeah, yeah. But that happened a long time ago. Like, you know, like only nerds know what like the what are the you know the eternals are or whatever it's like i have no fucking clue who the eternals are i'm never going to see another one of those movies so i don't give a shit but like you said it's just you know now it's like every third tv show is one of those things too it's like oh we need another thing that describes the like traumatic backstory of like this other character from this movie that you saw so oh don't you want to see how like hawkeye's like what is what he's like in real life instead of when he's not just like teaming up with his amazing superhero buddies or whatever you know like you get there right so like the like the mandalorian like shows like that but i I think even then though those are a lot of those shows one they're like just they're like dumped right so it's hard to really necessarily get that sense of weekly appointment viewing and people are watching them at different times so it's not even though they may be heavily discussed they're not what you were saying like game of thrones is just such a completely different thing in which it was like bam people are watching it at this time slot and you know live right. tweeting and discussing right like breaking bad was kind of like you know it was yeah. like that a, yeah. like a little you know a half couple years earlier but i mean you know it was like a show that like seemed seemingly like basically everybody watched and like you know people you know had to watch it when it came out because it would be tweeted about the next day and like you know that 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 era of tv only lasted for like eight years or something like that you know you basically had like breaking bad game of thrones maybe Mad Men was kind of in that i you know these are all shows that i had like Game of Thrones, I, I haven't watched, and I don't think I ever will. But um, the other ones, like I watched them after their runs because I just didn't want to participate in like the, you know, recap culture and like the Twitter culture and all that stuff. It just just seemed really annoying to have to like be pigeoned into watching it at a specific time when you could just kind of like not not pay attention to it, and then nothing would be spoiled because I don't know who any of these people are. And so, you know, I see some tweet that'd be like, oh, oh no, they killed the guy. And it's like, oh, well, okay. Thank God. I don't know who that is. So like, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I guess, I don't know, like what, what I think, I guess what, what I want to kind of talk about too, is like the, the, the change in, you know, to this asynchronicity and like the fact that it sort of it underlies this, this, you know, it's like an epiphenomenon of this business model, right? This this like business model of like Netflix or or Amazon or um, the other streaming services, the ones that are like sort of standalones that aren't really like tied to a network or whatever. Like I think those networks are mostly just kind of like trailing these things because this is what consumers are demanding or whatever. But like that, their business models are essentially like, well, we don't really care about like doing the things that normal businesses do like make like for instance making a profit or whatever we're just kind of like trying to like get people to like talk about us and give us money until like you know some questionable series of steps occurs and then we we like emerge on the other side with like this giant monopoly power or whatever and can you know charge whatever we want unfortunately marshall isn't here to discuss the antitrust implication implications of this but uh but my my question is just like you you know I, i i don't even know what my question is it's just it's just something like what does that what does that do to tv and like what is it you know is it is there any hope of breaking out of it because i don't really like it personally you know i wish there were like i wish we were like in the sort of 2013 media environment where there's like you know maybe 100 channels that you have to care about and maybe like 12 of them have stuff on it that you 
regularly watch, you know? It, it's tough. I mean, like, I've, I'm not saying anything new here, but it's like, if you trying to remember what shows on what streaming pattern, it's kind of yeah. like insane. Like, is it on Peacock? Is it on whatever Paramount's thing is or Amazon Prime? Or, uh, in some ways, it's good. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a TV critic. So, I mean, in terms of the quality of TV, I can't say it's probably good in that sense. And, and is it is it bad maybe in the market sense? Probably. But I think I do think eventually we will get to a point in which we if not, I don't think it'll be exactly like that 2013 era, but I don't think it's sustainable the way now of all the different streaming platforms. I think you're going to see some sort of consolidation or some sort of that. But I mean, that's that's definitely way outside of my <laughs> expertise. So I don't, yeah. I don't know for sure. Uh, the one thing I wanted to say is to, to end with, or not to end with, but just as one follow-up point to what that what Jerry said a lot earlier about the the, the how Russia Russian TV had the the Married of Children uh, remake is that like sitcoms american sitcoms are very popular uh in russia uh after the cold fall of the cold war and the they really remade yeah, a lot of sitcoms. that was the first big one uh, um yeah that was the first big one and they made, they made a lot of it a lot of them mostly like what we would call i think in the u.s somewhat silly or bad sitcoms like the the nanny is extremely popular in eastern europe and russia <laughs> in a rebooted way and, and it's uh what was that I mean the the in Ukraine like Zelensky was like a yeah he was I forget what it was what he was on and I don't know if that's a reboot if he's on a sitcom that rebooted an American show or not but it's it's interesting to think about just the way which I think he was playing like the sitcom was about him as a world leader yes 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 he was Um, the president of Ukraine yeah yes and the show is apparently called Servant of the People I don't know I'm I'm looking up here to see if it. He becomes he's a, yeah he's a high school history teacher who becomes a uh, president of Ukraine after going viral with you know some kind of civic minded rant. This is a very literal case, right, of like sitcom citizenship taken to an ex- the most extreme form. And I guess you could say you know Donald Trump is the extreme form of that in the U.S. TV citizenship right. is extreme, but that's just sort of really that's something I was thinking of when you were talking about that as the, the Russian sitcom and about yeah. I remember well, that about Zelensky. That reminds me of something interesting that I heard about TV, which is Matt Chrisman, one of the Chapo Trap House uh, hosts, has a thesis that basically like, you know, that the, there's two, like the sort of political parties mapped to two different um, like TV watching audiences where like the Republicans are like, you know, sort of the reality TV rabble with, you know, Trump is sort of their avatar. And then, um, you know, the Democrats are like prestige show watching uh, people with Obama as their avatar. And like, oh, you know, he, he sort of uses this to develop the thesis that like Obama was the prestige TV president because he was basically like a flawed but sensitive character, much like the sort of male protagonist of most of these, you know, Breaking Bad or, you know, The Sopranos or, you know, like um, yeah. uh, Mad Men, you know, those, those kinds of shows. And that like, you know, uh, those shows kind of depict someone who's in these moral, morally compromised situations and kind of has to figure out how to be an individual good person or justify like being a bad person to themselves and like you know obviously obama's written like eight thousand pages across like four different memoirs that basically is just all about that so uh you know i wonder if you have any thoughts on (laughs) sort of how uh america's uh you know political tendencies map to different sort of tv watching audiences or if you agree with this thesis of obama as the uh the prestige tv president i think i agree with that i mean is it something i think we can 
take anything away from i have no idea i mean like donald trump seems to be like the reality president i mean this is a very cliche observation but like the reality president joe biden a lot of people have compared to like almost like the the dad president like sure coming in to restore order so it's i i whether or not i don't again i have no idea if you can make any real generalizations from this but i do think it's with with all our political leaders right there's a sense of like we draw upon tv reference to it that it's uh you know in what ways do they represent things that we can understand in a very easily digestible way and i think with yeah as you said obama kind of representing more of the you know the cool kind of cool but flawed tv figure but then you know donald trump is more of the uh i don't like the reality exciting chaotic figure yeah well i think that's a really good point that like tv for 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 various reasons like tv has like colonized a lot of the ways that we think about you know politics or just like real life you know going back to what we said about you know sort of the being uh, part of the neoliberal mindset is like draws from this metaphor of like the 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 format of the tv show so much so that like yeah like you know bowling alone when it's talking about communitarianism it can't help but fall back on these like simplistic plots that are you know in some ways derived from the constraints of the 22 minute format or whatever um and like you know when you see enough of these things and these sort of patterns become imprinted on your mind i guess it just you know it, it it creates areas where you sort of see restrictions where there might not otherwise be them you know i I don't want to go full idealist here and say that like you know it's a, <laughs> we we're just talking about like the the beautiful isolated minds of every person and if we could only just make our minds a little bit better you know things would be different obviously there's a whole you know material component to this as well but i do think that it's really interesting to sort of examine how and why people think about things and and you know i think in that way maybe we can kind of wrap up with just a final discussion of you know the dreaded neoliberalism and like <laughs> what where we are with you know the sort of mapping of tv onto neoliberalism do we you know do we think it was like a a sort of a i mean cuz the thing that i find interesting about about your the, the connections you draw in your thesis between neoliberalism and the sitcom is that the point at which you can sort of find it starting is a lot earlier than the point at which you sort of yeah. usually situate the beginning of neoliberalism. And it indicates to me that maybe there was like a mental, like a seed planted in our heads that like made it easier for that to take root than it maybe otherwise would have. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. No, I, I know what you mean, because it's like the traditionally we think of neoliberalism as an ideology. People really start talking about it like the, the end of Fordism, 70s, 80s type period. And, right. Uh, and I'm not saying that these sitcoms are like full on, like explicit neoliberalism, but it's like some of the same foundational ideas. And I think that these are ideas that are just very much that sort of post-war, if you want to say it's a swing back to conservatism, it's a swing to personal responsibility as opposed to government action, but it's definitely a part of that American post-war ideology in which personal responsibility communitarianism but on a very individualized family-oriented level uh are the central themes and that's it's not like they've never existed in the u.s before they certainly did but it's uh we had begun to see kind of a swing or challenges to that idea especially during the depression era during the world during aspects of world war ii uh which people really thought of more i don't know very more communitarian 
solutions or options. And so that the, this post-war trend exemplified by these sitcoms, as you say, kind of prefigures the very explicit neoliberalism, you know, taking individual responsibility, uh, you know, de-emphasizing de government's role. Yeah, well, I think the thing that, that really stood out to me that was like maybe made the, the 50 sitcoms different from maybe other, you know, sort of the traditional uh, sort of communitarian outlook, which I, like you said, I think that's always existed, is that like they do have this very express sort of stopping point where it's like, uh, and, and it's interesting how well this ties into the, the format of the TV show. And it's just, you know, it just makes you wonder if, is that just a coincidence uh, or, you know, does, is there like interplay between that? But like the idea that like, it's not just that like the best thing you can do politically is to be active in your community. It's that the best thing, in fact, it may be worse for you to keep going beyond that. Yeah. And that there's like, there's a real like definitive stopping point for like when political action like really needs to stop. Like, yeah. and you know, like I said, for the TV show, that's just because, you know, as, as Jerry was saying too, like the, the limitations of the format just mean that like, if somebody's elected County clerk, are, what are you going to show them being County clerk now for 10 minutes, every episode? Yeah. No, like that's just not going to happen. But, um, but that strikes me as being distinctive to the, for, to this format and, and maybe just a coincidence, but, I'll, but, you know, maybe it, Maybe not. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I think that's something that, that I found very interesting, sort of thinking about how the, just the, that limitation in the format, you know, it does create this something that feels like more proto-neoliberal than like something that just feels like more of a continuity with like the previous sort of communitarian narratives, you know? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think that the, the nature of the sitcom, whether intentionally or as we said earlier, a happy coincidence really helps set up a lot of the the limitations of what uh, what we're thinking of in terms of civic action and community action. All right. Well, Jerry, you got no, me. No, uh... I, think, I think this has been really cool. Uh, this is definitely, like I, as I said at the outset, I mean, this is something that I am not super well-versed in. So, for you know, it's always interesting to uh, get the perspective of somebody who's actually done, like, deep research into this. So thanks, Mike, for, I mean, this has been really exciting. And, um, yeah, I, I personally learned a lot. Yeah, I thought it was really, really interesting. And yeah, like you, I, I'm not a connoisseur. Of I'm not, I'm not a connoisseur of any and, television. Uh, you know, it's the thing. It's like, so like for me, I just, I, I, I have to say, and this is not really connected at all to any sort of specific like aesthetic um, principles. It just happens to be the case that I'm pretty bad at like following storyline arcs. And so for me, I tend to need things that are like self-contained. Um, like if, if you're asking me to watch like, you know, uh, eight seasons of like something, I just like, I'm like, I get exhausted like through season one. I'm like, damn, this is like seven more of this. Like I, I can't, I can't do this. Like I just, I can't muster the enthusiasm. Like, even if I kind of enjoy it, I just like not that into it. So it's like, so for me, it's just like the, the notion of following like a, a, a sitcom for like an extended period of time just like is is just it's it's just a difficult thing <laughs> and so uh so yeah i tend not to not to do that um it's always funny when someone's like you need to see lost or something and it's like you do realize that you just made an imposition on like i don't know 120 hours of my time or something like that you know yeah. like if i tell you you need you look you you need to see singing in the rain or whatever you know what you know some you need to see Citizen Kane. It's like, okay, 
I have three hours, you know, I can fit that in. I maybe don't have time to watch, uh, you know, uh, 11 seasons right. of 45 minutes. So much. Just, I'll, t- I'll tell you this, like about, I want to say two years ago, maybe. Yeah. Like two or three years ago. Now um, there was a thing on Netflix, which was called Russian doll. And it was great. It was like the ideal thing for me because it had eight episodes and each episode was like 45 minutes and it could get through it in like three days. And I was like, boom, it was done. I enjoyed it. And then it, it was over. I didn't have to think about it anymore. I didn't have to like carry on like a mental map of what happened in season one into like a further season. Um, and I would like to see, I personally would like to see more of that. Like, please make more like mini series that have like six episodes and that I can just like watch those six episodes and I can be finished with it because it's like, again, I cannot, I cannot sit through like X seasons of anything. So please accommodate my short attention span. So Mike, do you want to plug anything? Do we, do, are, do you have social media? Do you have uh... articles? I don't have any articles because I'm I'm uh, not an academic anymore. Uh, I I have Twitter, but the only thing I used it for is to yell at my cable company and make fun of myself. <laughs> so uh, I uh, I don't I there's nothing really to follow there. Uh, so I don't have anything to plug uh, other than uh, maybe somebody will give me a job. But if if you need a media if you need a media critic or a professor of suburban studies. We can definitely uh, vouch for Mike as uh, someone who has read the book Crabgrass Frontier. You ever thought about publishing your dissertation? I uh, I thought about it at the time uh, that I was I was working on it at one point, but then uh, when you then I kind of ended up out of academia, and then it just was sort of like a time sink to do so. If I right. wanted to do it now, I really need to revise a lot of it, especially the conclusion. But uh, yeah, it strikes yeah. me that there's a lot there for. Um, you know, if you really wanted to write a book that that like people really liked or hated, you could write a book on like race and TV or whatever. And like a lot of the seeds yeah. for that are there. And I feel like that would be, I mean, because one of the things that struck me about reading your dissertation is that the the scholarship on, and you know, like you said, understandably so, because people didn't have like DVDs and, yeah. you know, the ability to just like go look, watch any Father Knows Best episode on like a Russian website whenever they wanted. But like, um, you know, there's a lot of like flaws in the scholarship. And I think that like, there's a lot of uh, like the, the, like my conception of what an episode of father knows best or my three sons or whatever that like involved going to Japan or like there's a Chinese love interest was like totally different than what actually it was like. And I was kind of, I mean, I wasn't really blown away, but I was like, I was very surprised at how uh like there was like a there was like a real like sort of like baseline respect for yeah. the like other in it that I wasn't really expecting from this kind of show. I might have expected it from like you know um, like more of the urban sort of vaudevillian shows, you know. Right. But I didn't. I would not have expected it from like the uh, sort of conservative Leave It to Beaver style shows. Yeah. Well, I want to thank Mike for being so generous with his time and for walking us through this really interesting discussion about something that I personally had never given much thought to. Uh, Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, Thanks to our listeners, and we will see you next time around. Bye.